The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to The Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Michael from The Square Ball on hosting duty while Dan is having what he's calling a well-earned holiday. I'm just going to say it's a holiday. Phil Hay is also here, a man who once put off an operation so he didn't have to miss a single minute of Leeds United's season. You can subscribe to The Athletic to read all of Phil's articles, plus loads more about football and other sports. I read one about the Live Golf Tour the other day, a sport I know you absolutely love, Phil. Did you enjoy that one? My favourite sport in the entire world, golf, yeah. Um, as I've said many, many times, it was me actually who put Will and Holiday on um, the prep sheet. I didn't mean it. I was just being, you know, <laughs> just being generous. Um, but do, if you can um, do us a favour, um, everybody, and not tip uh, Dan off about all the screw-ups today, that would be great. He's a radio man and he takes us all very seriously. Uh, other than the golf stuff you've been reading, then what have you been writing this week? There's a piece on Matthias Clake who, it's been a bit of a, is he going, is he not going? Um, that argument and debate kind of crystallised by his performance against Wolves on Saturday. Very good, very influential, really did leave a question mark over whether it would be sensible for him to go. There's a longer read on Brendan Aronson, a bit of a pressing machine who had a very good debut, I thought, um, and physically is going to be a big asset for Leeds. And on the audio front, we spoke last week about the Andrea Radrazani interview um, that ran on the website um, and also video versions of that on YouTube. It's now available. If you haven't listened, it's, there's a full podcast version, which is the entire discussion between Radazen and myself and David Onstein. You can download that now. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, there's an offer on at the moment for £1 a month for the first six months. You can get that at theathletic.com slash leadspod. In case you missed it, this is the second Phil Hay show of the week. We had the, the earlier discussion of Wolves, so if you want a bit more of that, go back to Monday's pod. We're recording this one on Thursday afternoon, straight after Jesse's pre-Southampton press conference. What did he tell you? Are we signing a left-back? No. Um, and oh. I don't think I'd stick my neck out and say that the signing striker either at this stage. I will I will come on to that. It's not out of the question, I don't think. But it is quite equivocal as it seems to have been for a couple of weeks now, certainly since it became clear that Ketla wasn't coming in. It's strangely calm though, actually. I think last season dragged us all back into the traditional feeling at Leeds of everything being on the edge and everything being about to blow. But after steady win on Saturday... And, and actually a, a stable summer in which, yes, big players have gone, but players have come in as well. And, and most of the transfer business seems to have fallen into place as, as Leeds wanted it. There is a, a fairly sort of placid atmosphere at Thorpe Arch. And you certainly saw that in, in March today. There were no real dramas at the press conference at all. And good news on the injury front. They've got Liam Cooper back. They've got um, Lewis Sinistera back. They've got Adam Forshaw back as well. All of them were kind of short-term injuries, which were, were due to clear up around about this time, you know, a couple of weeks into the season. They'll be available for Southampton at the weekend. How heavily they'll be involved, I think, is um, a separate matter altogether. Mars sort of indicated that with Sinistera as, a, as an example, they wouldn't be able to push him too hard given that he's not had much of a summer um, and, and has been out for a little while. But the squad is in decent shape physically. Um, everybody seems enthused by the win at the weekend and I can understand why because it was a good one. You say it's nice and calm. Have you been keeping an eye on Twitter? Yes, there is that. No, look, I, I get the... I totally get the issue with transfers, particularly the forward. I know there's a feeling that Leeds need cover at left back, and I think they do as well. I, I wouldn't disagree with that, but it's pretty obvious to me that when Firpo is fit, um, Mars sees him as first choice, and that is how it's it's going to play out. I think the the worry with Firpo is going to be that it you know it, it's not been a full preseason for him or anything like it. His fitness wasn't there last season; suffered from a lot of injuries, and, and the form wasn't there on top of that. So. You know, in order to play himself into good condition and, and good form, he, he could have done with a full summer. And I think there's still 
the jury is very much out, I think, on whether or not he's going to be a good signing for Leeds and whether he's going to fill in at left back. But he will be there. You know, I think in a couple of weeks' time he should be available, so there will be a left back in the squad. The confusion with the striker is going to be that they they went so big on De Kettler, like Radazani was saying in the interview last week, they bid forty million euros for him, so the thick end of thirty five million pounds. And we're absolutely committed to doing that deal if De Kettler had said yes to them rather than, than going to AC Milan. And on that basis, you automatically look at look at it and say, well, the money is clearly there and so is the the interest in bringing in another forward. But Marsh today, I, I asked him, you know, he, he didn't really sort of commit on transfers about whether he expected any more to happen in this window. So I asked him, do you think you're late in any particular position? And it was, you know, forward strikers that he spoke about and he said that at the moment, it's a case of evaluating the options to make sure, in his words, they get the right profile. And he said today, and he said this previously as well, and Radrazani did as well, that one of the things that the profile has to do is to make sure that somebody coming in is not going to block the path of, for example, Joe Gelhart. He also referenced Mateo, um, Joseph Fernandez and um, Sonny Perkins as well, although they are clearly a lot further back than Gelhart. But there does seem to be a slight anxiety about signing somebody who would essentially block Gelhart's path. But I don't think that changes the fact that most of us can see the scope for another forward in this squad. They can see room for it. They can see why it would be an advantage. So while they keep saying that they're active and they are actively looking and, and actively thinking, to use the phrase that, that Marsh used this afternoon, there's not a lot of progress there. And certainly the links that have come up this week have very little in them. Are we in danger of being a bit complacent here after one win and one game of a fit Pat Bamford? Well, the only thing I would say to that is that actually... Marsh's quotes today echoed pretty much what Radrazani said last week. So even before the win over Wolves, um, once De Ketelaar was gone, there did seem to be a shift away from, you know, looking at Calamendu, who, who looks like he's bound for Rennes, uh, Martin Terrier at, at Rennes um, over in France as well, and others, there was, there was the link to Shea Adams. It seems to have moved from the feeling that a striker would come in um, to a sense of them being in two minds, I think, biding the time, powder dry, Perhaps results will influence that as it goes on. And, and if Leeds find that they look short of goals, look short of chances, feel like the creativity isn't quite there, then perhaps it'll push them into something. But at this stage, to judge by the noises, it, it really doesn't feel as if much is, is on the go. And in terms of complacency, I, I don't actually feel that this squad is miles away. I don't think that, you know, we haven't asked Marsh, do you think this the, that you are a light in, in certain positions or certain areas? I don't think it is drastically. But as I say, I can see why a left-back would be helpful. And I can definitely see why over the course of 38 games, another forward would help too. Not a striker, but someone linked yesterday and according to some reports, more or less a done deal was uh, was Sar coming in from Watford. Is there nothing in that? No. A strange day yesterday. Um, the report about Sar from France, not the first time his name's come up, but given the impression that it was you know very much on the cards and heading this way, which it definitely isn't from speaking to the club. They've essentially ruled that one out. Also, one matter as well, again, not for the first time, but reporter Mark is saying that, you know, the, the kind of only option on the table for him, given that he said no to MLS clubs, are Leeds uh, and, and that he wants to come here and, and that it's likely to happen. That again, being knocked back by Leeds, I don't think that will happen. And then again, last night, report of um, João Pedro from Watford potentially coming in on loan. Again, one that appears to have nothing in it. You would almost think that somebody at Watford um, needs certain players to go or people who are um, associated with certain players at Watford feel like they might be might benefit from moves elsewhere that seemed to be being pushed by certainly being pushed in 
quarters where where Leeds were pretty pretty nonplussed about the fact that it was being discussed in that way. I don't think any of those three will happen. I don't think any of those three are on the table. But as I say, if people are saying that they think Leeds need another forward, I certainly see where that argument is coming from. Where do these stories come from? Because the Matter story, for example, there seems to be some detail in there about how Arthur's been speaking to his father and all this sort of stuff. And it's it seems I don't, it seems too much detail to be entirely made up. Arthur knows Matter and knows Matter's family well, so. I think I've probably said this before that in a lot of instances and bearing in mind that Leeds do scout a huge number of players and do a, a lot when it comes to recruitment work um, they, they spread themselves across a, a large number of names it could be said that in a lot of these instances there is something to it in the sense that Leeds might have had conversations with clubs or representatives about the situation testing the ground but there's always a huge difference between clubs um, between players that are looking at speculatively and players that they actually intend to bid for so you know, to use De Kettler as an example, even when he was speaking to Milan, there was still an agreement in place about the fee with Club Bruges. There was, you know, give or take an agreement in place with um, De Kettler's people about what his salary would be. He wanted to go to Milan. That was the one he wanted to push through. But had it ended up being Leeds, Leeds were already in a position where they knew that he could, they, that they could pay for him. But with other players, very often it doesn't get that far down the line. In other instances, you do have people, agents, other people who will just use Leeds and not just Leeds, but other clubs as well to hang transfer stories on. You only have to go through the summer and look at the number of players who are linked to Ellen Road to know that Leeds cannot possibly have had a a firm or serious interest in all of them. Otherwise, you would be, rather than talking about a squad of 25 at Leeds, you'd be talking about a squad of about 150. Some of it will have legs in the sense that Leeds might have made inquiries, they might have done backgrounds on these players they, they might have done close-up analysis for example they have done a lot of analysis of, of Terry at Wren so that is a, a concrete link but it isn't to say that they're actually going to do it and it isn't to say that they could afford him or that they would want to spend the money on, on him specifically but they like him enough to do that sort of background on him with Tsar with Pedro with Mata it feels like something or nothing and it feels more to me like somebody making sure that their names are out there as available players it doesn't feel like Matter would be an obvious fit for Marsh's style, given he, even in his uh, in his younger days, he couldn't particularly run very far. It would be an odd use of resources, I think, particularly if Matthias Cleek is going to stay in this window, and we'll come on to him in, in part two. But you're right. I mean, Leeds covered, give or take, the most distance of, of any club over the weekend. The pressing was, the, the numbers around the pressing, the number of individual pressures that they applied was very high in comparison to the, the other 19 clubs. That's the style they're going to play under Marsh. It's going to need a lot of legs. It's going to need a lot of running. And, you know, without being unfair to Matt and saying he he can't do that, I think even as a basic discussion about numbers, do they need somebody like him in this squad, given how many midfielders they, they now have? You know, does he fit? Does it make sense to allocate resources to what would be a fairly chunky wage, you know, coming off the back of, of the other clubs where, where he's played? I mean, clearly he isn't in a position to demand everything because he, he needs a club and, and he needs a transfer. But it just doesn't feel, from age profile or the type of player that he is, it just doesn't feel to me like that would fit at all. The one signing we have seen, not one to particularly excite people, but probably a necessary one, Joel Robles. Yeah, former Everton Wigan goalkeeper, spent a little bit of time at Atletico Madrid and was also at Real Betis, well into his 30s. So, you know, absolutely the the sort of keeper that Marsh was talking about when he was discussing the, the possibility of bringing in somebody more experienced. The interesting question with this one was what it was going to mean for Christopher Klassen because there's no doubt at all that Ilan Mele is a clear first choice at Leeds and he's going to be clear first choice provided he stays fit this season. I, I don't know about you, but I thought he had a really good game against Wolves. Mm-hmm. I, I thought 
there's virtually nothing he could have done about the goal but there were some excellent saves in there and also the basics just seemed to be bang on right the way through 90 minutes and I was saying on a Monday podcast that I think he is on for a, a big year Melier but Klassen tucked in behind him similar sort of age but minus the, the same experience at, at Premier League level and obviously Robles coming in begs the question of whether or not Klassen is, is going to stay as second choice I think ideally Leeds would probably want that to happen because they do want Klassen to develop and they do think a, a hell of a lot of him but Marsh said today that you know, Robles gives them healthy competition, as as he put it. And he said, ideally, you know, ideal world, class in his second choice, and he's deservedly second choice. But, and again, this, these were his words, he has to earn it. You know, he has to be second choice on merit um, as opposed to by default. And I don't think that was a dig at class in at all. I don't think that was to suggest that he was in the squad because there was nobody else. But I think Robles coming in means that class is going to have to be at a high level for the under 21. He's going to have to be at a high level um, in training to make sure that, that he keeps Robles off the bench and that he is second choice behind Melier. Just thinking ahead to the League Cup game, do you think that might be a chance to see him or do you think that would be a, a job for Klaassen? It would make sense to me for Klaassen to be playing in games like that if you are trying to push him and, and you are trying to, to develop him. And, and I know that uh, Mark Sabad, the goalkeeping coach at Leeds, is a big advocate of both the, the young keepers, Melier and, and Klaassen. Club think very highly of, of both of them. It's a strange one with Robles because you would say that if he's here to not be in the squad because it's Melier number one, class and number two, then it almost feels a little bit by money, like money for nothing. But it does, I think, reduce quite drastically the risk of a goalkeeping crisis, which we were talking last week about Van, Danny van der um, Hoyville and the, the road accident he had in Holland recovering from a pretty bad neck injury. And I think, you know, it's, it's going to be out for the foreseeable future. That really meant that if you lost Melier and Klassen was coming into the, into the team, or even if Klassen picked up an injury, you were starting to move into much younger and much raw, uh, more raw um, choice of, of goalkeepers from the academy, which is just not not adequate and, and not the way that, that Leeds should be set up in the Premier League. So Robles kind of removes that threat and removes the risk of them being badly caught short. But, you know, the, the longest shot of this season is that Millie will look to play 38 games. If he's fit, Millie probably will play 38 games. Um, so it's, it is cover as much as anything. And as you say, not, not one to particularly excite people. On Southampton then, Jesse spoke about keeping momentum going. How are you feeling about this one? Well, it's hard not to think about the, the game last season. Um, last time we were down at Southampton and it was a, a real low point of the year. I know there were there were grim games, you know, away at City and Liverpool and Old Trafford as well, but they were against sides who you expected Leeds to have a hard time against and sides who were always going to finish towards the top end of the league. I think... Southampton away and Everton away were the two days over the course of the season where Leeds just did not turn up on afternoons where you really expected that they would. I saw Southampton as a very winnable game last season, the same as Everton. And I see it as winnable this time around. I don't know what you think and and you can tell me, but there seem to be plenty of people who are a bit worried for Southampton this season. That old thing of, you know, I fear for. They probably fall into that category, I would say. They've had a couple of years where they've been in the cycle of kind of being okay and then suddenly not being okay and results eluding them and Hassenholt coming under pressure. He's still there, but they got an absolute tonking at Spurs on the first day of the season. So I don't know what you think really, but I, I suspect they might be in for a hard year. When we were recording earlier this week, the three of us were more or less sat around well than Moscow. Me and Dan were kind of going, I think we'll win. I think we'll win. It felt like neither of us wanted to come out and outright say, this is a game we should be winning. But it does certainly feel like an opportunity given the way they finished last season, the way they've started this season. And they've brought in a fair few players, but it doesn't feel like they've 
they've brought in anyone with any kind of guaranteed results there. No, the signings that they've made, so Lavia from Manchester City, um, Aribo from Rangers, um, it it feels as not development signings in the sense that the academy level, the, the beyond that. I mean, certainly Lavia was, was at that point in City, but I think they'll push him harder at Southampton. But they don't feel like signings which are going to immediately enhance your strongest team um, or, or elevate, elevate you to a better level in the Premier League. And, and that, I think, is looking at Southampton's squad is exactly what they need. It feels very samey. I guess it is fairly samey under Ralph Hasenhuttle. I, I think, a little bit like Leeds, actually, I think they fall into the category of clubs who really, really need a good start this season. I think if it sets in at Southampton, there, there could be problems there. And I'm with you. I, I, I quietly fancy Leeds down there after the way they played against Wolves. I think it's an ex- extremely winnable game. And it is definitely part of this run of fixtures where Leeds need to make hay and get points on the board because there will be more difficult games than this down the line. How do you understand a club like Southampton? Because they started last season pretty well. At one point, it looked like they were going to push on to maybe even ninth or ninth or 10th, that sort of place in the table. And then they, they finished it with five points from 12 games at the end of it. And the same players are doing that. So what, what exactly has turned there? I think that phrase is probably it, pushing on. How do they do that? Are they doing that? Are they doing enough financially and enough with the recruitment to make strides in a division where other clubs invest constantly? I, I don't really think they are. They, they obviously lost Danny Ings to Aston Villa. It didn't feel to me that they were significantly better because of the money that they received. Or And that was one of that was probably the weirdest transfer of the previous window, just arriving completely out of the blue. And yes, Villa had money because of the, the Grealish sale. But, you know, there didn't seem to be a lot of opposition to that. The issues with them... Um, Ings contract down there clearly but there didn't seem to be massive resistance to losing somebody who was such a big player for them there seems to be a hell of a lot placed on the shoulders of Ward Prowse who I kind of feel year after year seems destined to be picked up by somebody better at some point he's a really really talented midfielder and you know I I wouldn't I wouldn't 100% pick them as a side who are going to finish in the bottom three but when I pick through their squad I don't think there's enough there to keep them far enough out of it that, that it won't potentially threaten them. While we're discussing Southampton strikers, is there a potential opportunity for us to go back in for Adams as a kind of uh, a, a new Dan James? He's been linked. Um, it's not a secret that Leeds like him or liked him. Um, going back to 2020 when they did um, Jean-Kevin Augustine, it was Adams who they would have done and thought they were going to do earlier in the month, um, only for Southampton to about turn and, and decide to keep him. It's, it's a possibility and, and he, he looks to me like the type of player who, if at the end of the month Leeds suddenly decided they needed a striker, weren't quite sure how much they wanted to invest, you know, didn't want to necessarily block Gilhart's pathway with somebody who is, you know, 21, 20, similar sort of age, then Adams falls into the category of players who, who might fit. Uh, there seems to be other interest in him, though Everton touted as as possible move for him. And he was on the bench um, against Spurs last weekend. It does feel from Southampton's perspective, like he is somebody who, if they get offered the right amount of money, um, will be allowed to go. But good player, I think. Um, without being an outstanding player, without being you know the sort of signing that would blow people away, I, I do quite like Adams. What are you expecting from the game then? Because the one at the end of last season felt quite tentative. Both teams seemed relatively content to get a point. How is this one going to play out? It was one of those games, a little bit like Crystal Palace away, where the, the game at Ellen Road, where you came away trying to decide whether it was a good point or it was a waste of an opportunity to win a game. It felt like a good point or a better point than Palace because it was in the middle of that run of games where Leeds were suddenly picking up results and, and were starting to get a little bit of momentum. I think it'll be tight and I think it'll be close. 
Um, but I would like to think that if Leeds play as they did on Saturday, certainly in the first half, and press as they did in the first half, that they'll be able to be far more aggressive and, and, and able to influence the game far more than they were when they went down with Bielsa um, that last season. It was so unlike his team that day, so unlike Bielsa's Leeds. It was really passive. The back three didn't work at all. They, they never got into the game at any point. And that, of course, was the, the afternoon when they were trying to rush Rafinha back from Brazil, international duty in Brazil. He got here in time, but didn't feature, didn't play. Um, they, they were a, a long way short. I don't see it being like that again. And I think this is a game that you have the potential to dominate. I also feel as if Southampton might be a ground where you can get the home crowd to work for you if you get on top. A win here and we're safe, aren't we? <laughs> well, I don't know if it was Dan who was saying this, but certainly it's been mentioned a few times this week. Um, Optus stat that if you collect eight points from, I think, the first five games, something like that, then you have a 96% chance of, of staying up. So that'd be, that'd be lovely. I'm going to make you say it then. Leeds win? Draw? I, I felt that Leeds had a win in them against Wolves. I feel like they've got a win in them against Southampton. Whether it'll be as easy to, to dominate away from home as it was, you know, for certainly the first half against Wolves, there was that period in the second half where it, it just seemed to grind to a halt. Although, again, chatting on about this in, in Monday's podcast, I was saying that Marsh's ability to change the game using click and, and to reassert, Leeds' ability to reassert themselves was Im- impressive um, when it mattered. It might be tighter than that. I think it, it might, you know, it, 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 I think it'll be a, a goal one way or the other, I don't think there'll be much between them. But yeah, I do fancy Leeds to win this. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman and I'm back with some good news. I'll be hosting the Athletic Football Podcast four times a week. I'll be joined by the likes of Adam Crafton, David Ornstein, Flo Lloyd-Hughes, Matt Slater and plenty more of the Athletic's brilliant journalists. And together, we'll bring you the best insight into the biggest football stories. So that's every single week, Monday to Thursday. And if you like what we do, then please follow and subscribe to the Athletic Football Podcast in all the usual places. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So on Mateus Click, a couple of weeks ago it looked like he was on his way out. Then he came on and turned the game against Wolves. Does this mean he stays? Well, give me your take on Click. Would you keep him? Would you not? Do you think it's in his interest to stay? I certainly think it's in Leeds' interest to keep him, but I'm interested to know what you reckon. I would 100% keep him. I think uh, the influence he can have on games like that, particularly with a proper midfield behind him, because I think I think last season when we saw the worst of him, Southampton may have been one of those games, actually, when he was asked to play as a, a defensive midfielder. Yeah, that's right. I just didn't, didn't think we saw the best of him. It didn't do him justice last season. I think he can still play a part there. And he just seems like a good guy to have around, which I know is very vague as a reason to keep someone but he feels like he's uh, he brings something to the dressing room that maybe some other players don't Yeah I, I remember a, a manager many years ago um, who managed another club in Yorkshire talking about a player who was on the books at their club and said he was essentially there for the banter you know as good as the dressing room I don't think that applies to Cleek at all and actually I think Cleek would hate to be seen in that way you know um, it's like uh, I just remember the conversation I had with David Prutton about when you know he was about to go from Leeds and you know he was asked to go and do that 
um, halftime pitch appearance, and he said that he just thought to himself, "That's basically what I've become." You know, I've become a bit of a a bit of a joker or a bit of you know, so somebody who can go and fill a bit of time for fifteen minutes while everybody's getting a pie. It's not like that with with Cleek at all, I don't think. But it is apparent that he's not right at the front of, of Marsh's pecking order. And whereas you know, Bielsa said in the piece I wrote about him. Um, on Wednesday, you know, Bielsa had his soldiers and, and Cleek was 100% one of them for so long. It feels very different with Marsh. You know, Marsh is clearly going to wed himself to Tyler Adams, to Mark Rocker, to to Brendan Aronson. But the one thing I would say about Cleek, and I think Saturday demonstrated this really well, is that he's different. You know, he is different to, the I guess, the the Marsh player, the, the style of player that will fit into this. And, and obviously there's no value in having Cleek if he doesn't work in this system. But I think what you saw against Wolves was his ability to get on the ball, to make those runs into space that give players an outlet, to to make it stick. But then also to play with intelligence. He's never he's never brash with his passing. He's never ludicrously ambitious with it. It's not Hollywood balls around the pitch. But he's really insightful and he's really clever with with the balls that he looks to play. And and that you know that pass into Bamford was just kind of trademark Cleek, also trademark run that Bamford does, and it, it set up beautifully the the own goal. V. Aronson's run into the middle. I there were seven players missing on Saturday. One of them was Dan James, who was suspended, but six through injury. And I think if last season taught us anything, it's that assuming there will ever be a fully fit squad at Leeds, um, or a fully fit squad in itself, is something of a luxury, which they should probably not, you know, n- not be complacent in thinking that we'll be there that often. And it just went to show that even with six players injured, one player suspended, there still was that option there. And I couldn't help look at Marsh's bench and think, had it not been for Cleek, how else would you have changed that without, probably without throwing on Gilhart and looking for a bit of Joffy magic, who would have actually technically and, and properly tactically altered that? And Cleek was able to do it. And I think, you know, that one appearance, I think has taken the club from a, a position last week where you spoke to the average person at Leeds um, inside the club and they would have said, oh, you know, it, it it probably does look like Cleek is on his way if he's not going to play enough, if he's not going to be involved enough. You know, he, he hasn't featured that much during pre-season. There are clearly players ahead of him. I think it swung from that to everybody looking at Saturday and thinking, if there's a way in which he can stay and be part of this, even if his role is bit part, and I think he, both he and Marsh probably have to agree that that's how it would be given the players who are ahead of him. But if he can still be there to to you know to have some role and to exert some influence... It's got to be the right call. I think. I think. I think they would miss him. I think they would. If he was to leave, it doesn't feel like it'd be one that'd bring in much money either, or no, or get a big wage off the books. So, you'd, for me, I'd be questioning why we why are we doing this, unless it's to keep the player happy. Well, Marsh. I asked Marsh about Cleek after the game, and and he spoke about players being pissed off. You know, pissed off with the head coach, with the way the game's going, with with the teammates. He talked talked about him and Cleek having discussions during the summer about having disagreements during the summer. He spoke about liking players who, who speak their mind and said Cleek is one of those. And I think that was a, a giveaway for the fact that it's not necessarily all been sweetness and light between them. I don't mean it's been a you know it, it's been a, a ruckus right from the start of pre-season either, but I think it was an acceptance of the fact that the situation is not ideal because Marsh can't give Cleek as many minutes as, as he wants. Cleek is by no means at the stage of his career where he just wants to come on for you know the the odd appearance here or there, and Masters speak every time about the fact that the World Cup is coming up. Cleek would like to be there. I think has a very good chance of going with Poland, but in order to make sure, probably needs to be playing enough between now and then um, to to 
to guarantee himself a seat on the plane. The next World Cup coming round, you know, I think we M thirty six by that point. Um, so the boat will, would probably have sailed. So he has to make it to this one if he's if he's you know going to play in another World Cup before he finishes up. I think so. There is that consideration, and it does make you realise that it's not quite as simple as Lee's just saying. Look, we might need him. We'd, we'd better keep him. I think everybody will be sympathetic to to where Cleek stands at the moment, to the fact that there are players in front of him. And suddenly there is a, a depth of choice in midfield in the way that there wasn't last season. But he is under contract. He's got another two years. I still think the game and the craft is there. I, I don't know if you think differently to this. I, I feel like we've gone beyond the days now where Cleek is going to religiously start as he used to under Bielsa. I think Leeds have probably seen the best of him as he's going to be in his time at, at Ellen Road. But I still think there's, I still think there's a good argument for hanging on to him. Yeah, I think we those two years of playing every single game, we can't ask much more. I don't think after after he did that for us, and I think he showed after the Wolves game, he does still have a, a role to play. I mean, talking of the move again, it, you forget that World Cup is actually a hundred days away; it's not in summer. So a move for him, I guess, would be a risk as well at this stage because you never know if you go to another club if you're going to get in the team, if their style's going to suit, if you if you're in a team that's doing badly in you know and not in the Premier League. There's a, still a chance you drop out there, isn't there as well? So it's, it's a calculated risk on his part. Yeah, there is definitely that risk. I think he would have a pretty broad choice of clubs. There are plenty out there who would like Click and, and would see ways in which they could make him fit. Um, Utrecht and Holland linked to them again. The, the word from there is that there's nothing concrete doing at the moment. And actually, as this week has gone on, it's, noises have been more and more that actually Leeds will be inclined to to keep him, provided that everybody's happy and it, and it is going to gonna suit. So I don't think he would, I don't think it'd be difficult for him to find somewhere to go. But you're right. I mean, there is the risk that you go elsewhere and you don't play, and, and suddenly you're even further off the map because I think it's unlikely that he'd find himself a, a move to somewhere more high profile than than Leeds in the Premier League at the moment. But it, it's I think it is the fact that that he's different and has a different style of game to most of the other midfielders in the squad, which kind of makes it imperative that that he does stay. I know Marsh is, has this style. I know he's. He, he has this way of, of playing that he's going to stick to. And as I've said many times, you can see that the players have been properly drilled in that and, and that there is a, a definite plan. But it doesn't mean that you don't have to break from it from time to time. And I think what Cleek did on Saturday was exactly what was needed. Somebody to just mix it up a little, to change what Leeds were trying to do and, and to help get out of a position where Wolves just seemed to be attacking in waves. You know, it was attack after attack suddenly the pressing had broken down. There was no ball retention in the centre of the pitch. And it did just seem to change with a click of a fingers with, with Cleek coming on. And, and clearly his, his role in the, the uh, winning goal was, was crucial as well. Did you believe Marsh when he said he was um, happy to be challenged or he was? They had some good discussions or however he phrased it? To be fair to him, I think he is. Um, I, I don't think he minds that particularly. Um, when you find out a bit more about Marsh and you read about him or you hear people in the States speak about him it's clear that he's a pretty feisty guy um there was a great piece done by mls.com on him which talking about the fist fights that he used to have with other players in training and when i wrote um a week or so ago about the, the infamous town hall meeting at new york red bulls the the um the meeting where marsh was introduced as head coach and it was a borderline riot the mc who was presenting it and was hosting it was saying that you know his only memory of marsh was him going nose to nose with beckham um, during a game involving LA Galaxy, he, you know, he, he does have that streak to him. And people who've watched his teams and know how he puts his teams together, Mike Grella is an example who played under him at New York Red Bull, said, you know, he does want a nasty streak in his side. So that, that's what he looks for. So I, I think as somebody who 
makes such a big play of communication and clearly thinks that communicating and talking to people and, and having people on board is such a, that, you know, a big aspect of what he does as a coach. I guess within that, you have to expect that from time to time, people are going to front you up over things. People are going to argue the toss. I think personally, as a coach, you, you need a balance. Um, you, you can't have people who are, um, who are challenging you and going against you constantly. But I do think from time to time, you, you will need home truths and you do need to know how players are, are thinking. I don't think it helps anybody for Cleek to be in the camp if he's very, very unhappy. And I'm not saying he is, but if he, if he, if he was to be very unhappy, there's no value in, in him being here and, and that just being allowed to fester. So it's, it's better, I think, for him and Mars that they're clear on where they stand. I do think part of the reason for not wanting to let him go is almost wanting to cling a little bit still to the Bielsa era because he was central to so much of that from the his Leeds career being back from the dead and the goal against Stoke through to some memorable bits like the, the Villa goal that was you know then cancelled out and then the celebrating at Derby and everything. He was He's just central to so many brilliant moments over the last few years. I feel like there's there's a real attachment to him. He, you wouldn't say he's a legend of the club, but he's certainly a legend of the Bielsa era, without any doubt. Um, and if if we're being brutally honest, I think over the last 18 months, there has been a decline in his impact um, and, and in his performances. It's funny, if you go back to that win over Everton in the first Premier League season and Bielsa's comments after it, and bear in mind that Bielsa never used to speak too openly or too effusively about individual players. He was always quite careful about that. But then after that game, he, he said, I look at Matthias Click and, and I think he's someone who could play for any team in the world. And I don't think Bielsa would ever say anything like that lightly. And pretty much since that point, you know, give or take a month, couple of months, and, you know, in part down to injuries, in part down to COVID and, and everything else, it has, you know, he has dipped Click. He has, he has dipped from being that player who was just always there and, and so influential to be more on the fringes. And and I don't think we're going back there because, you know, obviously the squad has moved on this summer and the, and the plan has as well. So there might be a, a little bit of that, a little bit of nostalgia, um, a little bit of the kind of sadness of, of players like that starting to move on. But actually from, you know, a, a hardcore football point of view, looking at that on Saturday, you just said to yourself, there is somebody who does have it in them to change a game. There's somebody who can influence a match there's somebody who can turn a difficult situation into one where Leeds are suddenly dominant again and are able to go from quite honestly a situation where they looked like losing to Wolves they looked like conceding again it did just seem like a matter of time to actually you know having it in them to to win that and and to look like the better side for the last sort of 20 minutes or so so I think yes there will be some nostalgia involved but I actually think looking at that you can see that there is still a good player there it also feels a little bit like he's been here before at Leeds in that his first little spell under Christensen, he was bombed out. It felt like we'd seen the back of him and he was, we were probably never going to see him again. And to coming back into the team and being a central figure, it felt like we were almost reaching the bombed out stage again at the start of this season. But then, you know, maybe this is his his foot in the door. Yeah, definitely. He's played a lot of football since then. That's the only thing I would say. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's kind of four years older now than he was back at that point. But it always interested me that he, he went away to Utrecht on loan and, and said to Arthur, listen, you know, I'll be back in the summer and I'll be competing for a place again and, and expect to get one. And he had a, a bit of a claim to convince Bielsa and it was largely down to Forshaw's injury that, that he got himself into the team. But once he did, it was just an automatic pick every single week. And, and that went on for, for 92 games straight, which was, I mean, actually, Dallas has, has kind of eclipsed that with with his numbers and, and his run of appearances up to the injury la, um, last season. But um Cleek just looked totally, totally unbreakable um, and was for, for such a long period of time. So, yeah, I, it's not to say that he can't get himself 
involved again. Tactically, I feel as if Marsh is far more likely to to lean towards other players than him when it comes to starting lineup. I think I I wonder whether at some point Aronson will gravitate from the right hand side into the the centre because he certainly seems to have the game to play there. Although he, he was very effective on the right on um, on Saturday as well. But I feel as if when it comes to the eleven, it will be players other than Click that that Marsh is is inclined to choose. It just seems fair to say that behind them, there's there's somebody there who can still do a job. Just over a week on then from the first win. What are our first impressions? Are we staying up? Are we Europe bound? Winning the league? Somebody who is not, uh, has no dog in this fight and is not Leeds connected but knows a lot about football messaged me early in the week to say, ah, they'll be fine. They'll be fine looking at that. I think once bitten last season, twice shy and I'm certainly not sticking my neck out after one game. But did you, did you enjoy Marsh Ball, if we can call it that? Should we call it that? I don't know. Marsh Ball? We, I mean, it's the it's the modern trend of it's what you have to call things, it'll isn't do. it? It'll yeah. do. It'll do for now. Whatever it was, anyway. I mean, I was on holiday, so I was failing to get a stream for the first half. So I switched on at half time, and it was all wolves for quite a lot of it. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh no, what's going on this here? Is all, yeah. This is awful. But I had read on Twitter in the during the first half that things were fine, and I have obviously watched it back since. I thought the first half was really good. It's very different. It was very chaotic in a lot of ways, and the goals. Well, the, the opening goal certainly for us sort of summed it up in that it was. Uh, it was a scramble. It was kind of half. It, they had the ball a couple of times and looked like they were about to clear it, but just the sheer persistence of Aronson and Harrison just managed to win it back. And I don't know. I can see that it's going to work in some games. I have maybe some doubts about how it's going to work against some of the better teams, but then that's the same. It's true of all tactics because nobody beats Man City and nobody beats Liverpool. I think what I liked was having watched them play pretty fluently against Cagliari and, and look like they they knew what they were doing. It did translate, I thought, into a game against much better opposition against Wolves and and the, the things that Marsh was asking them to do the things that he was looking for the, the whole basis of the tactical model certainly seemed to be there before half time you're right about the, the frantic nature of it. Um, it it was a pretty wild first half and it was fairly loose in parts but it I did come away thinking if that's you know the kind of exuberance of the start of the season or the, the, the infancy that this model's in this project's in then You'd like to tell yourself that as as a bit more control spreads through the team and spreads through the play, it could become a lot more targeted, a lot more effective, a bit less off the cuff or, or as I say, a bit less frantic than, than it ultimately was in the first half. But I like the fact as well that Marsh was able to turn the game in the second half at the point where it really needed to happen. You know, you, that, you, you earn your money as a coach putting together a team and coming up with your, your strategy. But on the day... You know what? What really justifies the money that that you get in and, and the position that you've got is your ability to see what's going on in front of you and, and your ability to know how to to influence it. Um, and there did seem to be, it was a little bit like clicking a switch, really. Um, click coming on, everything changing, jobs are good. Now ahead of the Calgary game, before I went on holiday, we were saying, what do we want to see from this? And I think I said I wanted to see an attacking plan that worked or showed some signs of working. And I think we definitely saw that, which I don't. I don't particularly feel we did last season. There were games that we obviously won, but they all felt a little bit, I guess, chaotic in the same respect, like the Wolves game and then the Brentford game on the last day. There were a lot of things going on around it that felt like they were not they were not real games, if you know what I mean. They were not they were not standardised in any kind of way, whereas this felt like a, a more normal start and a pattern that we might see across the season and something we can actually look to build on. I felt as well that once Leeds got ahead, um, the second goal in the second half, and, and once Wolves were kind of forced to commit... They did start to look really dangerous leads. They started to find gaps in the channels, gaps out, out wide. 
There was the header from Bamford, brilliant, brilliant save from Sa, but there were good positions as well for Cleek on, on the right, Harrison on the left. It, it, it did open up, and I think when it did open up, you could see that there was intent there to use the gaps and to use the opportunities to go forward. And, and there was no negativity in the play, no negativity in the decisions either. Gilhart and Somerville coming on late, I don't think it necessarily made a massive difference. But it did say to Wolves, look, we're going to try and nick a third here if we can. You know, it's not going to be a case of, of sitting back and, and waiting, waiting for you to score again. And I didn't really feel towards the end of the game that they were under wild amounts of pressure. Um, or looked like caving in. It was all round. I, I thought it was good without being perfect. I think there were things that they need to work on and things that need to get better. But I thought it was a good start. And it seems like Aronson is the player that everything's going to be based around. He seemed to make the attacking system work. He was very good. We've written about him at length. Um, if it's Friday when you're listening, it will be online as we speak. His um, They talk about individual pressures in football, which is the pressure that one player tries to put on another player in order to, to nick the ball. And he applied 31 on Saturday, which was the highest in the, the Premier League. 12 of those successful. And, and I went back through and watched what he was doing. And you could see specific plan to, to pressurise and to hassle Wolves on the left-hand side, um, which you know worked and, and did cause a problem. I knew he seemed to just have Aronson on his case all afternoon. And you know, having gone through it and seen Aronson nick the ball off him for the first goal and you know constantly press him, um, out on that flank and then force him into an own goal um, for the for the winner. I know afterwards people were a bit disappointed that it wasn't credited to Aronson that it didn't go to him and it, and it went down as an own goal. But actually, because of because of how much Aronson had been on his case all afternoon, it was quite fitting that in the end it was an own goal credited to Tainuri. You mentioned earlier you see him maybe moving more central as the, the season progresses. Do you think that's Rodrigo out and then maybe James or Sinistera in? I think that depends on how Rodrigo plays and how effective he is. He he got the goal on Saturday. I felt he played okay without being outstanding. I, I, I like the look of Aronson more on the day than, than I did of Rodrigo. But Rodrigo seems very fixed in Marsh's plans at the moment. I think if Sinistera comes into the picture and is as good as Leeds think he is and, and is, is worth the money um, that they've paid for him, then there starts to become a bit of flexibility, doesn't there? There start to become options. So you, you have Harrison on the left or you could play James there. James equally could play on the right as well. It can be Sinistera on the right with Aronson inside. It can be a mix of, you know, a mix of those options. Um, and it does feel you know, a little bit like the midfield. It does feel that further forward, there's more to pick from now. There's the... There's more to work with and I guess if you find that players dip in and out of form, there are more ways of changing it um, and, and different routes that they can take. As I say, I, I don't think that counts out the value of adding another forward to the squad, but they are pretty well placed in terms of numbers. I thought Tyler Adams in a, a much more low-key way had a very solid start as well. He felt like he was he was getting the blocks in and doing the, the job that he's been brought in for. Yeah, the, the interesting pair, him and Rocker, because Rocker is clearly going to look for the surgical passes. You know, he looks like the, the, the more silky on the ball midfielder, somebody who will really try and pull the strings. Adams, you would think over the course of this season, will get through a hell of a lot of graft, will be a good ball winner, um, will be a good a good platform. I think as well, when the system really settles down and everybody knows how to knows what to do, where to go, how to react when you know there are turnovers, when they're on the ball, off the ball, I think um, Adams more and more will come into his own as a, a really solid player in that position. Again, to go back to the discussion we've had a few times before, I, I understand why these signings have been made. You know, I understand how they, they fit into this. Oddly enough, the player who I thought could have a bit of a barnstormer on Saturday, um, Rasmus Christensen, probably had the most difficult afternoon 
of of anybody. But having looked at him closely at Salzburg and spoken to people about him, I still think there's potential for that to be a really good signing. And I think he did salvage his afternoon with that slide tackle in the second that half was, as well. That was one of those where you sat there thinking, this is either a fantastic <laughs> tackle or it's the most stonewall penalty Ellen Road has either seen. You're either going to get your toe on this or you're going to completely take him out. And it was it was terrific because, I mean, that was... That was a goal waiting to waiting to happen, wasn't it? Yeah, you have Johnny Woodgate Real Madrid debut flashing through, don't you? Yes. Is, this a, is this a red and a penalty? And uh, we're asking for uh, for an injured Luke Ayling back early. Yeah, one of those that VAR isn't even going to bother getting out of bed for. Although quite often VAR doesn't seem to get out of um, bed for for very much. And I did love the fact that we're about twenty games into the uh, twenty minutes into the season before. Marsh was fighting with Bruno Lars. Everybody was moaning out about VAR. It was like, yes, here we go again. How are you enjoying that side of it? Because obviously under Bielsa, the touchline beef has been, generally speaking, maybe Villa aside, fairly well restrained. There's been a lot of respect there and he doesn't particularly get involved with the opposition bench. But Marsh seems more than willing to have a bit of a pop. We lived through a, a really unique era with Bielsa and that was one of the aspects of it, that he never fought with head coaches. He never took them on. He never had a pop at them. Um, off the top of my head, I can hardly think of um, any exceptions to that. Never had a dig at referees. Um, the furthest he would ever go would be to say, for example, when we spoke to him about time wasting after the Newcastle game in January, Leeds lost 1-0. All he said was, you know, with regards to time wasting, there are rules available to stop that sort of thing. You know, there are rules um, in the books, so that's how it is. And that was it. You know, there was never any, never any tantrums, never ever blamed anything on them. Even though he might have done personally, you know, might have done privately, might have sat, you know, at home thinking that was a terrible, terrible decision, but just wasn't his style and, and couldn't couldn't bring himself to do it, which I, I always liked. I think with Mars, there will be far more confrontation on the touchline. I think it will be feistier. I would, if I was a spread better, I'd be backing Mars to probably pick up more yellow cards over the course of a season than Bielsa did. Not that Bielsa was totally immune to them, but, you know, he, he tended to keep his nose fairly clean. So, yeah, there, there will, I think, be, be a bit of niggle but there is undoubtedly already specific niggle between Lars and um, Marsh. Like Marsh said when we asked him afterwards about it, he said, well, it was the same at Molyneux, wasn't it? <laughs> we were having to go at each other there and then. And I, I think um, I think essentially Huang went down having been scratched by a fingernail. Something was said, I think you can probably guess roughly what, um, and it all kicked off from there. He's right to say it though, isn't he? He's allowed to say that he's gone down for nothing. <laughs> Well, nobody's actually said what he did say, so we're, we're kind of assuming. But you know, it's hard to think of what else would have would have been uttered in in that moment. And yeah, no, I, th- I think he is. And what I what I think was most annoying about the decision not to penalise Sa for you know clattering Christensen with his elbow was that a few minutes earlier you'd had that challenge by Rocker on Huang adjudged to be a free kick, even though I think there was you had you had to have some doubt as to whether or not there'd actually been even the, the faintest amount of contact there and if there was it didn't seem to it didn't seem to cause much threat to Huang's life I didn't <laughs> think but you know that was a free kick the, the the penalty wasn't I mean here we go really isn't it it's going it's going to be like this all season because it was like this last season it was like this the season before we'll be we'll be talking about VAR every week something else you'll have talking about then the kit oh the kit is it in the sea <laughs> Dab is asking me about this on Monday it popped up on Monday morning saying um, Leeds kit had um, dropped off a boat um, and was submerged somewhere in the ocean on the way from Singapore. I think it was actually on the way from Vietnam and the, there was a boating accident involving a ship on which the Leeds kit was present. 
I think the club are hopeful that the their kit itself hasn't actually fallen into the sea. I think they think it's it's okay, but because of whatever has gone on with this boat, there will be a delay in it arriving. Although I think the club still expect the, the date for the release of the home kit to to land as agreed and and to go ahead. Um, it it has honestly just been a, a catalogue, not just for Leeds either, catalogue of things with the kit and. You know, I've directed people to this previously, but there is a, a long read on our site about why it is that suddenly this summer it's been a battle to get shirts in the door at various clubs in time to, to sell them as they normally would. It does feel like this is this the end of the line in a, a list of bewildering excuses as to why the kit isn't out. Like, you know, there's, there's been COVID and some supply issues and now it's, it's all sunk. I mean, what, what can we do about it? <laughs> Truly cursed. Um, you'd, you'd almost say only at Leeds. Um, and it is it is very weird that you've got the the away kit out before the, the home kit. But I suppose if you've been fair and, and if you're thinking about it, so many things were affected by COVID. Um, so many things were delayed, were interfered with. Given that so much of the kit is produced in the Far East, there was absolutely no reason why it shouldn't impinge on this at some point too. The only other bit of big news then, we've got uh, our League Cup game against Barnsley. Are you looking forward to that one? Is it going to be our only League Cup game this season? Well, I get the feeling the club would like a cup run if, if they could could get one going. I would like a cup run. I think everybody would like a cup run, wouldn't we? Um, I've never seen, obviously there was the, the run under Warnock to the, the quarterfinals against Chelsea in the League Cup. It's as far as Leeds have got in all the time that I've covered them. I've never seen them do anything in the FA Cup with the exception of, you know, individual results here and there that have jumped out. So Manchester United away, 2010 and, and a couple of others. But nothing... I know, and okay, for, for a long stretch, Leeds were a League One club and a Championship club, so the idea of a long cup run was probably pretty unrealistic, especially when you're trying to marry it with with getting promoted. But I think they've they've been in positions both of the past two seasons where they could have had a crack at it, really, and and have have kind of exited with a whimper, particularly away at Crawley. It would be nice if it could happen, but I guess Marsh is probably going to have to give some thought to what he does with his team on that night. You know, there are quite a lot of players on the fringes now who would be looking for games. Yeah, with, with Chelsea on the Sunday previously, you know, you would think there would have there would have to be changes from that, and he's going to go, he's going to go the strongest side against Chelsea, um, and then the, the following weekend a, a trip down to Brighton, which is a really difficult league game as well. They they look good on the opening day against Manchester United. There needs to be a balance in terms of of what he picks, and you mentioned class and earlier, you know, that seems to me like the sort of game where if you were thinking of of pushing those players at some point this season, your Archie Gray's and, and others, then maybe maybe that will be the time. Having seen the draw, I know you're you're not a Leeds fan, but you're kind of involved. Did you get any sort of PTSD triggered from that from that horrible Barnsley game that we played in the end of the promotion season? No, not especially. I, I can't say that I get PTSD from that game specifically because it was it was kind of wonderfully horrible, if you know what I mean. It was it was well worth the grimness of getting to the end of it for the feeling at the end of it, and it was people went mad the next day because we ran a piece saying. Surely, surely, Leeds have made it now. It was it was at the point where, I forget the exact calculation now, but I think the only way Leeds could have lost out on promotion by that point was on goal difference, which obviously could have could have happened. But it just felt as if there was, you know, there was no way back from that, that they were virtually over the line. And it, it was like that at full time. There were players in tears and everything else. You could see that they knew that they were basically there, if, if not mathematically there. So that was absolutely worth the torment that something tells me that Barnsley at home in the League Cup um, second round might not be quite the same might not be quite the same sort of experience Um, but 
of merit in its own right. I think we should change the defensive structure roughly every five minutes, as we did in that game, just to just to keep a bit of interest going. That was the thing in that, that I remember from that game was just Luke Ayling looking over to the bench, constantly shouting to ask where he was playing now, because it felt like he moved every every five minutes or so. And also, I think for the the first time in about uh, close to a hundred games, looking at Bielsa, I'm thinking he doesn't seem to know what he's what. <laughs> what he wants to do here I don't know everything under him was just so programmed and was so organised and was so crystal clear and then suddenly you had Ailing coming off at half time looking like he was going to punch somebody in the dressing room because it had been switched about it had been moved it just was not working Barnsley were quite clever what they did tactically in the second half and I think they could sense as well that the pressure was 100% on you know like they, they they almost I think started to enjoy being in those circumstances but it was a it was a weird, weird day and I always looked at it as a kind of last hurrah of absolute agony before um, before Leeds got their bliss. No pressure this weekend though. Nice, easy away win. Are you going down to this one? I'll be going down to this one. I'm driving because by all accounts the trains are going to be an absolute disaster. Um, they were an absolute disaster getting home last season as well, but um, there's a rail strike this time around. Um, are you predicting an, an away win? Are you? That's mm, bold. A draw. Dan, Dan goes away on holiday and suddenly <laughs> go on just predict 10-0 or something I've, I've been here. forced to fill in on hosting so I'll fill in on the optimistic predictions as well yes it'd be like that Kit Kat advert where the guy's trying to photograph the boring pandas and then every time he turns his back they're doing like roller skating <laughs> behind him Dan goes to Greece and you're predicting 6-0 wins at St Mary's but um, I think I think Leeds do have another another win in them they're doing uh, a 9-0 defeat aren't they um, and yeah no absolutely um, would be nice but I continue to look at this stretch of six, seven, eight games and feel like it's a period where Leeds do need to make make ground and, and, and make progress and this seems like a prime fixture to do that in. Great stuff. We'll catch up on all that on Monday. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at the Phil Hay Show and a reminder that you can sign up now for a special price of just £1 a month for six months at theathletic.com slash leadpod. We'll talk to you next week. The Phil Hay Show.